You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, this is Michael Brown. On today's broadcast, it's Friday, which means answers to your questions, but we're doing it a little different. We do this every so often that I'm taking questions that we solicited on Facebook, on the Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page. Now, we did this earlier in the week, so don't post a live question. I'm replying to questions that were posted earlier. I'm also not interacting with breaking news or anything like that. We are just doing Facebook questions that were previously posted early in the week. We don't do this often. Every so often we'll do it on Twitter and just get Twitter questions, but we're doing it today. Sometimes we'll do this on a travel day if I'm flying all day or overseas or something like that. So today for me is a travel day to Vancouver for ministry over the weekend. If you're anywhere near Vancouver, anywhere in British Columbia, I believe I'm doing four meetings on Saturday on Courageous Christianity, then speaking Sunday morning So all the info is on the website, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. All right, we'll start with a question from Tim. My question has to do with church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, clearly lays out the order of discipline. But my question issue, my question is, once you reach the final stage of discipline, how should we interact with the individual being disciplined? In my church, we are instructed to treat them as an unbeliever, but Paul uses harsh language in 1 Corinthians 5, such as do not associate or do not even eat with them. So it seems to be more complicated than simply treating them as an unbeliever. I understand redemption being the end goal, but also fear that if we do not properly disassociate from the individual, the church may also fall into deception. Thanks for helping me sort this out. God bless your ministry. Okay, we're talking about people, human beings, maybe family members, friends, people we love. So we want to make sure that we're doing this correctly before God and before people. We want to make sure that we are exercising the fullness of compassion, but they are also walking in the fear of the Lord. So Matthew 18 is talking about someone who sins against you, and then you speak to that person one-on-one, and if they don't hear you, then you come with two or three witnesses, and if they don't hear that, then you tell it to the church, and if they don't hear the church, then you put them out, treat them like a tax collector, a sinner, just a common sinner, all right? Now, that's one scenario, and that is starting with someone sinning against you. 1 Corinthians 5 presents a little bit different scenario, namely someone who claims to be a believer but walking in open, unrepentant sin. So let's focus on 1 Corinthians 5, okay? Let's say you have someone that's in your your congregation. Let's say you have a congregation of 250 people, all right? And you have one guy leaves his wife and hooks up with a young lady in the congregation that he likes and is now sleeping with her and coming to church and raising his hands and praising the Lord and so on. So you reach out to that person, confront him. You're committing adultery. You're in sin. You can't tell me this is sin. God told me I married the wrong woman and he's blessing this relationship. And so you, you, let's say it's your friend. He doesn't listen to you. So you get other, other leaders to sit with him. He won't listen. Okay, well, at that point, if he refuses to repent, 
and and we'll and you you pray, you reach out with gentleness, with compassion, you warn. If you won't listen, then you tell the whole congregation, and at that point, the person is excommunicated. I've only been involved with this a, a few times, and it is a fearful thing. It is a sobering thing. It is something where you're examining your own heart, and even looking back at things. Yes, could do better in certain ways, but. It's over a period of time where the person refuses to repent, and it's for the honor of the Lord's name as well as for that person's good. In a case like that, you don't eat with that person. You don't do business with that person. The goal is to completely exclude them so that they will come to repentance. That's the goal. Now, the problem is, in today's world, you leave one church, go to another down the block, and everything's fine. In the biblical world, there was one church in the city. That's it. You're shunned. You are shunned. So in the case of repentant, uh, persistent, unrepentant sin, where someone has continued to live this out, refusing to repent in front of the body. We're not talking about someone struggling with secret sin or someone saying, help me, man, I, I want to get free. I just don't know what to do. I'm struggling with this addiction. But we're talking about open, unrepentant sin. If the person continues in it, will not turn from it, then you put them out, you disfellowship them, and you disassociate with them, to bring them to repentance with the hope that they will turn to God. All right, let's see. Doris says this, I moved to a new community in another state and have been unable to find a church home. So I've diligently studied my Bible every day and choose to watch several reputable preachers on Sunday morning on television. And hang on, just had something pop up on my screen there. My question is, is it my desire to send my tithes to God? Uh, it is my desire to send my tithes to God. Should I send it to the TV preacher? Should I give it to a children's hospital in the name of God? Do I help homeless people with it? By homeless, I mean truly homeless people, not panhandlers. I would appreciate your opinion on this. So th the purpose of giving, be it a fixed tithe or giving systematically above and beyond that, the purpose of giving is obviously to honor the Lord with our first fruits and to say everything we have belongs to you. And then to support those that minister to you so that they can have sustenance, and then with their oversight and supervision to distribute those funds to others in need. Hence, quote, tithing to a local congregation. You would do that. It supports those who pour out their hearts and minister and are there for you day and night and are preparing the word and praying and they're to help minister to the sick and the hurting and counsel families and things like that. It's their job. In fact, they probably work more hours and get paid less money than they would if they were in the secular world. Most pastors are not overpaid. Most pastors are not getting rich. Most pastors are, are not flying around in private jets and living in mansions, okay? Just to set the record straight. So that's what the money goes towards. However, if you have not, whatever location you're in, you've not found a Bible-believing church or maybe even a house church, you haven't even found that, then I would say do as you feel led by God. If you are getting nourished by a ministry, and someone's got to pay the bills for that ministry. In other words, if you're getting nourished by a ministry that's coming your way on, on TV or radio, and that ministry is helping you and blessing you, then it's, it's perfectly right to send to support to them if you're not part of a local assembly. It's, I would keep praying and looking, though, for a local assembly, because ideally you want to be there with, with brothers and sisters that you can encourage, that can encourage you, and with leaders that can pour into your life and things like that. But that not being the case right now, it's not a law about this. I would encourage you to bless those who do bless you, so at least to give some of your income to those who are a blessing to you. 
And then if you want to help with other causes because you don't have a local church to distribute the funds, then just distribute them wisely. Make sure they go where you want them to go, though. Make sure you're giving to legitimate works or legitimate ministries. That's that's the key thing. Okay, let's see. Um, just keep going straight down. Let's see. Karen, please explain the importance of why Jesus had to come from the seed of David through his lineage to be the only propitiation for our sins. Lately, I've heard this refuted that he had to have a perfect body, God placing a perfect embryo in Mary's womb as not to have the sin nature. Does that infer that Jesus wasn't able to live in in the human body and not sin and therefore unable to be the sacrifice that his father God required due to Adam's disobedience? Thank you. Okay. Jesus does not have a perfect body that is incapable of sin. It's not the body that sins. It's the, the, the spirit, the soul within that chooses sin. The body may be prone to fleshly lust, but the body doesn't sin. What Jesus did not inherit was the sin nature from Adam by being born of Miriam, Mary, with God as his father. He does not inherit the sin nature of Adam, but he still had a physical body that needed to eat, a physical body that would get tired, so he needed to sleep. He was fully human in that respect, but he never sinned because he was the perfect son of God, the word made flesh, and therefore he never sinned. Being the seed of David was very important, though, because the promises were that God would bring redemption to the world through the seed of David, and God keeps his word. And there had to be a people that would receive him, understand his message and make that his, his mission and make that known to the world. That is the Jewish people. So it was essential that he came as a seed of David. Now you say, well, how was he the seed of David if Miriam was his mother and he didn't have an earthly father? Well, his, his earthly foster father, Joseph, was in the royal lineage but I believe we can make a good case that Miriam, his mother, was of the line of David, and therefore his physical bloodline was Davidic. Um, Mike Christopher, I have seen miraculous healings firsthand. I have actually been the instrument for a handful of them. What hinders me from receiving my own for myself, my wife, my kids, all facing issues that doctors have no answers for? Sigh. Mike, I, I add my sigh to your sigh. That's rough that's difficult, that's often hard to understand, especially when you've prayed for others here and there and seeing a miracle, and you don't see it in your own life, in your family. So first, I encourage you, as I'm sure you know, keep worshiping God, praising God, believing God, in spite of sickness, pain, as difficult as it may be, make a determination to profess, Lord, I believe you. Lord, I know you're faithful. Lord, I know you're true. Even though I don't see I continue to believe and encourage that spirit of faith in your family. That's one. Two, in the midst of suffering, you can grow and, and God can bring compassion for others in pain. I'm not minimizing the difficulties and, and they, they may be terrible, overwhelming difficulties. I'm not in your shoes. But in the midst of the suffering and pain and sometimes even demonic attack, you can still grow in, in character and perseverance. But three, I would say that sometimes we see miracles as God works through us sovereignly, or as faith rises in our heart, but often we don't know what the word really says about divine healing. We haven't really meditated on it, taken hold of it. And Mike, I have a whole teaching series on Israel's divine healer. I'm the Lord, your healer. It's on our website. It's, it's in our school. If you're a torchbearer, you can listen to it for free. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's in our online classes at Ask Dr. Brown dot org and digital resources. 
It's about 24 hours of teaching, really digging into the Word, and maybe just getting into that, getting into that, getting into that. Faith would be built. Your, your faith would rise on behalf of you, your family, and you would even see some supernatural breakthroughs. So we don't just rely on God's miraculous power, but the promises of His Word. Now, maybe you've been doing that, but this series will encourage you. If you can't afford it, please just write, identify yourself, and say that you were the Mike Christopher that posted on Facebook, and I recommended that series. And we will get you a code so that you can listen to it with your family for free. All right, friends, not taking your calls today, but we are answering questions that were previously posted on Facebook. So don't post them now. I'm trying to do them pretty much in the order in which they came in. But before we end this segment, Lord, we pray for Mike. We pray for his family, that your grace would flood their lives, that you'd manifest yourself among them as the great healer, deliverer, and savior. Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we will be right back with more important questions. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends, just another reminder everyone in the greater Vancouver area, Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. Yeah, it takes a lot of flying to get there. My flight route to get there this weekend is, is uh, Charlotte to Dallas, Dallas to Vancouver. And coming back, I think it's Vancouver, Phoenix, Phoenix, Charlotte. But it's a good amount of flying. But very important meetings this weekend. Uh, a, a lot of attack on religious liberties in Canada in these days. Some real activist causes that are radical and coming against the faith. And the evangelical church in Canada is smaller than in America. And Canadians in general tend to be, I make a broad statement, less confrontational, a bit more easygoing than Americans. And, and we can fight more tenaciously here. That can be good or bad, of course, either way. But there are believers coming together saying, hey, we have to stand for righteousness. We have to stand for the next generation. So we're doing a courageous Christianity conference in Vancouver this weekend. The details on my website, sdrbrown.org, SK. Dearbrown.org, click on itinerary. Also, uh, middle of next week, yeah, Thursday, Friday. So starting on Thursday, I will then be in Tulsa, Oklahoma, God willing, with Sam Storms, Jack Deere, Matt Chandler, Andrew Wilson, Christine Kane, I think. And it's going to be a, a conference focusing on divine healing. And some of the very questions that, that Mike just asked that we read from Facebook in the last segment about why we see others healed and we're not healed, practical pastoral, biblical, theological. should be a great conference. You can still register for that. All the info is on our website. All right, let's look at Francine's question. Again, these were all posted some, some days ago. And as I'm pulling up on my screen, they'll say eight hours a day. But by the time you're hearing and seeing this, these were days ago. So don't post new questions now. Francine, there seems to be much confusion in the body of Christ regarding grace, what it is, what it is not. Personally, the term hypergrace is not an accurate phrase to speak to this either. Isn't there a difference between mercy and grace? Is theologically erroneously using them interchangeably? Uh, thank you, Dr. Brown. Okay, number one, hypergrace refers to an abuse. Hypergrace is an exaggerated teaching on grace. You say, well, you can't exaggerate grace. You can exaggerate anything. You can exaggerate the love of God to the point that there's no wrath. You can exaggerate the justice of God to the point there's no mercy. Paul says in Romans 11.22 to the Gentile believers there that they should look at both the kindness and severity of God. 
both and. Both should be examined. Both should be looked at. Both should be understood and meditated on. So hypergrace, as I address in my book and in an online video course, is an exaggerated message of grace that goes beyond scripture and misinterprets some key verses and has some theological error in the midst of beautiful statements about grace. So there's good in it, but then exaggeration that can be very dangerous, an error that can be very dangerous. Is there a difference between mercy and grace? Yes, they are related, okay, and and grace is filled with mercy, but the Greek word charis that is translated as grace also has a nuance of empowering. So Titus 2, 11 and following that the grace of God that brings salvation is appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness, and it goes on from there, that grace empowers us. You're not under the law, but under grace, which doesn't mean simply that you're under this new system. That's part of it, but you are also empowered by this. Uh, even the charismatic gifts, it comes from the same word charis. So grace is an extreme form of mercy in, in that it is not just God having mercy on us, but, but the Son of God taking our place and then us becoming sons and daughters of God and God's family. So the perfectly righteous one dies for our sins. That's extraordinary mercy. But grace goes even further and says, okay, now you become children of God and you become joint heirs with Jesus, the Messiah. So that, that's the extraordinary fullness of grace. There's a story that I tell in, in the book, Go and Sin No More, that I, I in turn got from another author. But what happened was there was a, a conference or some scholars at Oxford University were having a discussion. Uh, as I recall, the stories, Oxford or Cambridge, one of them, are having a discussion among top theologians and religious scholars and others, philosophers, and they're discussing how Christianity is unique among all world religions. And C.S. Lewis comes walking in, they're having a big debate. He goes, oh, that's easy, grace. So there is a concept, not just of God having mercy, which you have in other religions, okay? And, and Judaism, you're, you're praying daily for mercy, and there is a recognition of grace in a certain way with the Hebrew word chen, and, and chesed, it's covenant mercy. But there's something even beyond that that comes through the revelation of God sending his son into the world to take our place, die for our sins, and then we inherit his righteousness and then are empowered to live a godly life. That's grace. So it goes even beyond mercy, all right? Hypergrace then goes beyond biblical grace, but with error mixed in. Okay, let's see. Um, Emil, some claim we're still in the seventh day of creation. They use the fact that Genesis 1 doesn't mention an evening morning for the seventh day as evidence for continuation. Furthermore, passages like Hebrews 4.1 and Psalm 95.11 are used as evidence for his rest being equivalent to God's rest on the seventh day of creation. How should we interpret it? The rest in Hebrews 4 and Genesis 1. Uh, no, we, the seventh day is not open. It doesn't say morning and evening simply because of God just taking that whole day and ceasing from work. Uh, and that is the, the open door now to the concept of rest. God ordained that for rest. Now there's a spiritual rest that remains. So no, we're not in the seventh day of creation. You don't find that concept anywhere in Scripture. The fact that Psalm 95, quoted in Hebrews 4, speaks of rest for the Israelites even after they come into the land there is a greater rest that God wants to give us, and it ultimately comes through relationship with God through the Messiah. Hence, Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come to all you who are laboring heavy laden, I will give you rest. It's also rest from religious tradition and traditions of men. 
where we enter into that ultimate Sabbath rest. So you could say we enter into the same rest God entered into on the seventh day, but it doesn't mean that we are still in the seventh day. Uh, let's see, Lisa, could you expound on either of these scriptures? Matthew seven twenty one. that everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And 1 Corinthians 15, 29, otherwise, what will they do? Those being baptized on behalf of the dead, if the dead are not at all raised, why indeed are they baptized on behalf of the dead? This is awesome of you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. You're a blessing. Hey, Lisa, my joy to answer your questions and my joy to do it on Facebook. So we're not taking calls today. If you're calling in, sorry to disappoint you, but God willing, oh, well, anyway, we may be doing uh, online questions next week as well, but most Fridays where phone lines are open. Okay, so Matthew 7, 21 is very clear that you can say we worked all these miracles, look at us, we did this and that, but unless you're walking in obedience to God, you don't enter his eternal kingdom. Does that mean I have to live a perfect life to be saved? Nope, that would damn all of us. Does that mean if I sin like one time along the way, I don't make it in? Nope. D- d- does that mean like if, if my last few days are not really strong that, I, that I, I go to hell? Nope. What it means is if I cast off the lordship of Jesus in my life, I don't belong to him. If I cast off the lordship of Jesus in my life and choose to do my own thing, I will not inherit eternal life. I will not partake in the eternal kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, so we're answering both is a, a highly disputed verse. The Mormons have taken it for the practice that you can now be baptized for dead relatives and they will, they will make it into some type of heavenly kingdom through what you have done, which is a great appeal. Like, wow, I know all my family and you know, eventually one way or another. Uh, and for the Mormons listening and say, I'm oversimplifying, fine. That's my intent is to simplify here in answering this, but Paul's not talking about that. Uh, we are all individually responsible for our lives. And as Hebrews 9, 27 indicates that there we're, we're each going to die once and after this, the judgment. No one else can bail us out after that. There's debate about what it means. Now, on behalf of the dead, does that, does that mean with recognition of the dead? Does it mean with recognition of those who have died as believers? And, and, and there's concept of martyrdom as we're being baptized. Is it something else? The big debate among scholars to this day, some claim it was a practice the Corinthians engaged in that Paul didn't even approve. But he simply references it to say, why are you being baptized for the dead if there's no res- resurrection of the dead? But exactly what it means, there sh- could be some practices in Judaism that relate to, to cleansing of the dead and things and, and baptism tying in with that. But again, it's, it's disputed, and I'm, I'm not sure in terms of what the right interpretation is. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, flat Earth. What's my opinion on the subject? I don't think we should give it 10 seconds of our time personally. Should I just insult, insult that the flat earth is out there? Sorry, but I don't think we should entertain it at all. No reason to scientifically or biblically. Um, Cheryl, update from Benny Hinn last night, gave lots of new info in his position. Some things were quite shocking, remarkable. Go to his son-in-law Michael's page, Jesus Image, scroll till they sit down on the couch to interview. Uh, Dr. Brown, we heard your Pensacola last week. What an amazing message you gave. We have the most respect for you and your ministry. Thank you the kind words, Shell, so glad you were there in Pensacola. If you didn't see the message, uh, go to my website, sdrbrown.org, or to our YouTube channel, ASKDR Brown, and just search for spiritual war, spiritual war, or spiritual battle, like how you can get me the exact title. It is our Jezebel message, Jezebel's War with America. 
Uh, I preached on that theme to thousands in Pensacola, and the Lord seemed to really move through the message. Many were touched and impacted. So we have the video up, and it's getting thousands of views. seems to be impacting others just as powerfully online. Um, but as for Benny Hinn, I, I hope it's true repentance. I hope it's deep repentance. I hope he brings forth fruit worthy of repentance for some of the wrong teaching in the past and the manipulative fundraising. And his son-in-law, uh, Michael, told me that he really believes God's doing something in his, in his father-in-law's heart and that this is very genuine, has nothing to do with critics. And I imagine that came out. So I haven't had a chance to look at that. Please understand that we get thousands of requests to watch videos, listen to messages, read articles, and we can only do so much. But it is of interest to me. And may there be genuine repentance, genuine change, and may Benny Hinn help others to make reformation as well. All right, back with more of your fascinating Facebook questions. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on this special Friday edition of The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers, but don't call. We're not taking calls today. And, and by the way, for those like, oh, it's not fair. I, I do my best to have consistency, so you always know on a Friday, you can call with any question under the sun, but many other days during the week, if I cover what I want to cover, news items, theological items, at many other days during the week, just, hey, you want to call any question under the sun. So we do our best to give you ample opportunity, plus do at least one YouTube chat a week where you can post questions and we interact in real time with your questions. But this week we're taking Facebook questions, but don't post them. We had many, many, many posted earlier in the week, and we're interacting with those. Andrea asked, why do you celebrate Christmas? They believe this is from pagan rituals and celebration. Uh, actually, I, I don't celebrate Christmas. We've had Christmas celebrations over the years as a family purely as a fun event. In other words, not as a religious event. I, I don't celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas those churches that do, that read scriptures to celebrate it, that, that sing special hymns, if it glorifies Jesus, wonderful. If, if it exalts the Son of God, if you go Christmas caroling and, and share the, the love of God with people, great. If it is primarily a, a time of greed and commercialism and, and everybody going into debt to, to buy presents and get presents and things like that, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? Nothing. Are there pagan myths and rituals, you know, the evergreen tree? And what does that go back to? And the, the, the yuletide logs and what are these, you know, there's a lot of debate. I've seen arguments on different sides. Well, the day was chosen because it was a pagan holiday. And this is just trying to Christianize a pagan holiday. Others said, no, it was a pagan holiday. But so many people got saved that instead of making a pagan holiday, they said, we're going to redeem this and celebrate our Savior. And others say, no, no, we actually believe Jesus was born at that time, and there are traditions in the early church that argue for it. Others said, well, he couldn't have been born at that time. So for years, every year, we'd have an annual debate close to Christmas, and, and, and listeners would call in, and got kind of redundant because it'd be the same argument for, the same argument against. So bottom line, you do what's in your heart between you and God. If Jesus is glorified in a special way, and it has spiritual meaning to your family, 
and your church uses this time to reach the lost in an effective way. Praise God. Wonderful. If to you it's associated with pagan ritual or with worldliness, or you feel it's more important to celebrate Hanukkah or celebrate Yeshua's birth at Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, you do that as unto the Lord. Just encourage you not to negatively judge others who, in a Jesus-loving, Jesus-exalting expression, celebrate Christmas. And those who celebrate Christmas don't judge those who don't because they feel it's not appropriate. All right? And it's not a cop-out answer. That's an, an honest answer. Uh, E.M., a popular debate in our area lately has been God is Father, God is Mother theology. Dr. Brown, can you please shed light and truth through the Holy Spirit what Scripture says about this? Thanks, and God bless you, your family, and the ministry. Well, thank you for the blessings, E.M. Number one, God transcends gender in terms of him not being exclusively male or female, and that he's eternal deity. And male and female in our world are categories that also tie in with sexuality and ability to physically reproduce and things like that. So obviously God transcends our concepts of sexuality and gender. And we also see in Scripture motherly aspects of God, where he compares himself to, to the, a mother with her tender love or not forgetting a nursing child and things like that. However, through Scripture, God is identified as male. God is identified as he, not she. We pray to our Heavenly Father, not our Heavenly Mother. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not the Mother, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As for the Holy Spirit, in, in Greek, there can be references to the Holy Spirit that are neutral, so a neuter gender, gender so neither male nor female, like an it. Uh, the Holy Spirit can be referred to in male terms. Spirit can be referred to in female terms. All these different expressions can be used with reference to the Spirit. But in terms of who God is overall, he wants us to relate to him as father. So he has motherly aspects. Look, Paul, who was a spiritual father to Timothy and a spiritual father to the Corinthians and was a man, told the, the Thessalonians that, that he and the apostles, his team, they, they cared for the Thessalonians like a mother with her children. So God's tenderness can be likened to the tenderness of a mother with her children. But God is mother. No, that is not a biblical theology. God wants us to relate to him as father. It is important that we relate to him as father. When Jesus comes into the world, when the son comes into the world, he comes as a man, not as a woman. Now, that being said, he's the savior of men and women alike. And in Jesus, there's neither male nor female, meaning we have equal status, equal standing. We are equally sons and daughters of God. And just like Eve disobeyed, she was deceived and fell, then Adam followed. Well, it was women who first saw Jesus rise from the dead and told the men the men didn't believe initially. So... You can have pros and cons in every direction. We each have distinct roles, but we relate to God as Father. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that all fatherhood derives its name from the Heavenly Father. It's important we relate to Him as such in our own nurture and growth, understanding He has caring motherly aspects, all right? And, and we are created in His Im image, male and female. He creates us in His image. So there's an aspect of the nature of God displayed in male and female, but God is our Heavenly Father. Uh, Aletha, hey, Dr. Brown, I was recently reading Hebrews and Psalms about you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I went on Chabad's site, this is an ultra-Orthodox Jewish website, to see what they had to say about Melchizedek, since many Christians believe it was a pre-incarnate Jesus. And one, they say it's Shem, son of Noah, and two, they say priesthood was removed from Melchizedek because he gave praise to Abram before praising God. 
On their Jewish version of the Bible, I say that only in case it's different from ours, the psalm is written as you are a priest forever because of the speech of Melchizedek. I remember back in 2002, 2003, you debating Rabbi Shmuley and using the reference in the order of Melchizedek a few times, but it seems there's discrepancy from speech to in the order of can you explain this? Also, your take on who Melchizedek was would be bonus. Okay. So what's on the Chabad website reflects interpretation in the Talmud about Melchizedek, and it's 100% bogus, and I can show you easily. The idea that Melchizedek was Shem, and that Shem, the, the son of Noah, lived as long as he lived, there's also no support for that. That's purely rabbinic tradition. So rabbinic tradition, based on Genesis 14, where Abram uh, meets Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, and Melchizedek blesses Abram first and God second. So allegedly because of that, the priesthood is taken from Melchizedek, given to Abram. And that's what's reflected in Psalm 110. The Lord, namely the steward of Abraham, said to Abraham, Yahweh said to you, my Lord Abraham, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then you'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's how Psalm 110 is interpreted. But even some of the medieval rabbis had an issue with that. For example, it speaks of Zion, rule from Zion. Abraham has no connection to Zion. No connection to Zion. The psalm has to do with David and the Messiah, okay? David's connected to Zion, not Abraham. And in rabbinic tradition, Abraham does not sit at the right hand of God, but the left hand of God. And the Messiah sits at the right hand of God. So it doesn't work. So again, the idea that it's Shem is probably a rabbinic reaction to Hebrews 7 and Christians teaching that we have no lineage for Melchizedek. So it could be rabbinic Judaism creates the lineage or else it just came from some other tradition, but zero support for it. Zero. That's one. Two, Psalm 110 could not refer to Abraham because it speaks of Zion, ruling out of Zion, and Abraham in rabbinic tradition sits on the left hand of God, the Messiah on the right hand of God. Here, the, the one addressed in the Psalm sits at the right hand of God. So what about the translation? Uh, it is a stiff, literal, and incorrect translation to say that it is um, after the word of Melchizedek. And in fact, if I just look here, um, just at a translation comparison, if I look at the new Jewish publication society, uh, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, a rightful king by my decree. So it takes Melchizedek in a totally different way. That's a very unique and different translation. But um, Aldavar is, is according to the order of, if it's on the word of, or, or Aldivrat, on the, the word of, it would be an unusual way of saying it. So the TLV, according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the NET, uh, you are an eternal priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. Uh, and just to read the translation note there, hang on, why doesn't it come up on my screen? Just a stubborn, slow reaction. Not responding in the middle of a national and international broadcast as we're speaking to millions, trillions, billions of people. Well, billions, trillions, I should say. Gazillions. And maybe people on other planets watching. My computer doesn't respond, but there it is. Oh, now it wants to check for, I didn't want to check for an update. And I didn't, I didn't want to call up this dictionary either. Man, alive, just trying to get something simple done. Here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> the NET translation note. The phrase aldivrati is a variant of aldivrat being an archaic genitival ending. So why is there that yod at the end, the y at the end, which in turn is a variant. Both phrases can mean concerning or because of, 
But neither of these nuances fits the cases, the use of aldirati in Psalm 110.4. Here, the phrase probably carries the sense of according to the manner of. But either way, to tie it in with speech, that's a poor translation. So all that to say, translations differ just a little bit in terms of how to render it. But what you're reading on the Chabad site in many ways is a reaction against, a distinct reaction against the interpretation of Hebrews 7. Who do I understand Melchizedek to be? I understand him to be a type of Jesus, the Messiah. I don't, I don't think he's pre-incarnate son of God, but some argue that based on Hebrews 7. I see him as a type of the Messiah with this unique priesthood, uh, and not the actual, uh, and, a, and a type, a foreshadowing of the son of God coming into this world as opposed to the son of God himself. But there is debate among scholars concerning that. Um, Judy asks, my husband and I have recently read through Ezekiel in our Bible reading plan, other than the prophet's warnings to turn back to God and be scattered and destroyed in some chapters of the future restoration of Israel. How does that book relate to end times? Thank you for clarifying if you have time. Well, in particular, when you get into a section like Ezekiel 36 through 39, so the return of the Jewish people from exile, from Babylonian exile 2,500 years ago, the dead bones coming to life in Ezekiel 37, the war of Gog and Magog in 3839, none of those things came to complete fulfillment with the return of the exiles from Babylon 2,500 years ago. Rather, there has been an ongoing fulfillment with the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, especially out of the ashes, the dead bones of the Holocaust in the last century. And I believe we will see that continue to happen with that cleansing of Israel once it is back in the land, more and more Jewish people turning to the Messiah, and then ultimately a final conflict, the war of Gog and Magog, in which God fights for his people which would then lead apparently into Ezekiel 40 through 48, which may be a prophetic picture or literal picture of God's glory through his temple back on the earth and a millennial kingdom. All right, a few more Facebook questions. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, can I give you two great ways to partner with our ministry? One that involves your finances and one that just involves a few minutes of your time, all right? You could join with us as a Patreon supporter, just about 30 cents a day, which I know some of you have, don't have 10 cents a day extra, but many, that's not hard. You could easily do that. About 30 cents a day, $10 or more per month. Go to patreon.com forward slash Brown. patreon.com forward slash ASK. D.R. Brown. You get two bonus videos every week, an exclusive YouTube chat, as well as a bonus teaching. Right now, I'm going through the book of Hebrews, one chapter a week. So you get dozens and dozens and dozens of previous videos, instant access to those. And then you help us produce more cutting edge, life changing material, which means that you get a heavenly reward and share in the joy with us here on earth as you help us bless others. So it would be an awesome thing if a bunch of you just joined in. I think many of you could do that, and it wouldn't be a burden. And that just goes right back out to producing more cutting-edge media material. The other way, won't cost you a dime. You can do both. That'd be even more amazing. Is if you've read and enjoyed any of my books, most recently Jezebel's War with America, which came out a month ago, or the just-released-this-week new edition of Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, or Not Afraid of the Antichrist, or Before That, The Power of Music, or Before That, Playing with Holy Fire, or Donald Trump's Not My Savior, or Saving a Sick America, any of the books that have come out in recent years, or before that, if you've enjoyed them, wherever you bought them, 
Doesn't matter where. If you have an account on Amazon, post a review there. Right? Even if you order on other websites, which is great, or from your local bookstore or from our, our website, which is great, uh, post a review there. If you enjoyed the book, it helps others. It tells others you recommend it, tells them why you recommend it, and also helps offset hostile negative reviews because we always have haters out there who don't like us and will post bogus reviews or just unfair reviews. So your good, healthy, fair reviews help balance that out. So could you do that? One of those things or both would be awesome. All right. Back to questions on Facebook. Not taking your calls, answering Facebook questions that we solicited earlier in the week. Julia, what is the true meaning of the term, phrase, child of God? Some say everyone is a child of God since we are all creating this image. Others say only someone who's born again can be a child of God. Please include scripture references to explain your answer. Thank you. Okay. In the general sense of all humanity being children of God, Paul quotes that in in, uh, Acts the 17th chapter, quoting from pagan poets, that we are all his offspring. So in terms of being created by God, in that sense, every human being is a child of God. But in the more precise sense, the way it's primarily used in Scripture, you are not a child of God unless you are his through faith and obedience. So read through 1 John, children of God versus children of the devil. This is how you know who the children of God are. This is how you know who the children of the devil are. Okay? Uh, John 8.44, Jesus addressing Jewish non-believers, you are of your father, the devil. All right? Paul speaking in the end of 2 Corinthians 6 that as we come out from the world, God says, you, I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters. So that terminology is found throughout the New Testament, sons and daughters of God by faith, new birth through the blood of Jesus versus the world, First John 5, 19, which is under the power of the evil one. So generally speaking, the whole world is God's offspring, all created in that sense, children of God, but the more specific sense used throughout the New Testament and even in the old as well, Children of God are those who are part of his family, having been redeemed and forgiven and in right standing with him. And, hey, Dr. Brown, I was just wondering if Christians making decrees and declarations and prayers biblical. I don't know enough about it. would really like some clarity. Uh, there's a verse where Eliphaz is speaking to Job in Job 22 and, and says, when you're right with God, when you've come through this time of purging, Eliphaz's perspective on Job's sin, that, that you'll decree a thing and it'll happen. And then Jesus does tell us in the New Testament, for example, Matthew 17, Mark 11, that you can speak to a mountain and it will move, All right? So obviously metaphorically speaking, but that you can say in Jesus' name, mountain, you move. Or you can say that God has made certain promises about us, all right? So Philippians 1, 6, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion till the day of Jesus. So You can say that, I declare in Jesus' name that you who began the good work, you will bring it to completion. In other words, quoting scripture when it's quoted properly with proper application, that's true. For example, Isaiah 54, 17, it's part of the inheritance of God's servants, all right? That's what it says at the end of the verse, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Well, it's initially applied to the city of Jerusalem as as God comes to redeem, but is the inheritance of the children of God. So you can decree, I decree in Jesus' name, no weapon formed against me will prosper, will succeed. That, that, is also, that is also something that we can do and that is right and righteous to declare scripture. But if you have a sense of faith from God that something has happened in your life 
and and you feel to speak it forth in prayer. You know, let let's say you're on the verge of bankruptcy. You've been honoring God. You had an unethical friend stole funds, and now your your company's about to collapse. And you you feel God saying to you, your company will not go down. Your company will not go down. I've done things like that, Father. In Jesus' name, I declare. I declare by faith, by your promise, that we will not go down. That we will glorify you. That our company will be here for your honor. And so that can be biblical. But the idea that I can just create realities by decreeing them, or I can change the past by making a decree, or I can decree that I have passing grades in school or good blood tests from the doctor and change reality, you know, that's, that's false and that's dangerously misleading. Um, Joanna, what's your opinion on the eternal destiny of those who have kind of heard of Jesus here and there? They believe he's the son of God, but were never clearly told that they must repent and turn to him to be saved. Joanna, that, that applies to a lot of people. My wife, Nancy, got saved at 19. She was a Jewish atheist. She said she never once heard the gospel, ever, until she got saved. Never heard it one time before then. She was not part of a religious Jewish home. She was a secular Jew and became an atheist. I'm talking to one of my friends, Jewish friend, about my age, real evangelist. And he said, Mike, I'm running to so many young Jews. They have, they have no clue. They have no, they've never heard the gospel at all, and they're so open. And then, of course, you have the ones that never heard, never heard, right? Like, like raised in a different culture in another part of the world with no access to the outside world, especially in the pre-internet days, but still many parts of the world untouched by internet and no clue, no access, never. If you said, do you believe in Jesus? They'd say, what's Jesus? Who is Jesus? Where is Jesus? They, you know, is it a place name? Is it a person? Is it a thing? No idea. My friend Yesu Potam, when he was newly saved and zealous for the Lord, went to, to work in, in, in a city called Tuni, and was very burdened, uh, went to a village and wanted to talk to the people about Jesus and, and asked some of the elders, do you, know, do you know Jesus? They said, we have no idea. We never heard of him. Maybe he lives in the next village. They just thought it was somebody in there, some Indian person they never met. So you're asking about, they heard something, but they don't really know who the real Jesus is. Until I heard the gospel preach when I was 16, I had no clue who he was. My Gentile Christian friends at school were just nominal my Jewish friends, we, Jesus was not a big issue to us. So there are lots and lots of people like that. My answer, so a long buildup, but the answer is really simple. God will treat them with perfect fairness. That I know. I know that there's no salvation outside the cross. I know that there's no preaching of the gospel after death. I know that there's no purging in, in hell. In other words, that it's not that the future sufferings will purge people and eventually you know, a la Rob Bell and others, eventually everybody is saved, everybody makes it. The most extreme, say, even the devil himself gets redeemed at, to being purged at the end. Scripture doesn't teach that. There are those eternally saved, those eternally lost. But I simply know God will deal with everyone with perfect fairness. That the compassionate, loving Father that sent his Son to die for the world will deal with everyone with perfect fairness. And that God does work in different lives in ways we don't even realize. And that if someone has access to the gospel, which virtually every American does, if that person responds to God's conviction, or if that person responds to God's drawing, John 12, 32, Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. If that person responds to God's drawing, God will get the message to them. God will get the message to them. So to me, ultimately, if someone dies with no knowledge of the Lord, but they had access, then they didn't respond to the light they had 
They didn't respond to the conviction they had. But either way, God will treat them with perfect fairness. Uh, Jermaine, and I'm not going to have time to answer this in full. What is truth? How can we claim an objective truth in a relative secular world? Truth is so important. If we start with God, we can know truth. We can't reason to God only from the knowledge of the true God. Can we claim absolute truth? How do we know truth? The world's world is view is illogical, but how do we proclaim truth to a world that begins with wrong axioms? May I encourage you to visit my friend Frank Turek's website, cross-examined, with a D, crossexamined.org, or to grab his app on your phone and to search for truth there. Frank has a great way of addressing these things, among other apologists, and helping us to realize that, uh, as he has in one of his books, Stealing from God, how in order to reject God based on alleged truth, you have to steal foundations of truth that come from God. And when people says there is no absolute truth, his response is, is that true? Anyway, I think you'll find that helpful. Lots of free apologetics resources. And those like the William Lane Craigs of this world who deal with philosophy even more can help lay that out. All right, friends, just a reminder, if you're anywhere near Vancouver, British Columbia, join me this weekend for a Courageous Christianity Conference. I believe I'm speaking four times on Saturday. Then again, Sunday morning it should be a powerful conference. And then... Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of next week in Tulsa, Oklahoma with Dr. Sam Storms talking about divine healing biblically, practically should be a great conference in, is it Oklahoma City? Go to my website, askdrbrown.org. And then first weekend of October, an apologetics conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the second weekend of October, the great apologetics conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'll be in all those places, askdrbrown.org. Check the itinerary. 